Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday morning. Thank you for making me part of your weekend. Braves baseball has been a big part of this weekend as far as the sporting landscape of Atlantis. It always is from early April, maybe late March these days. We hope to way late in October, and we were thinking this weekend might be a little bit of a snapshot, a little bit of a preview of what October could look like if the Braves and Astros manage to find their way back to the World Series, a stage that both of them have played on. They battled it out in 2021. Braves won it all. Astros won it all last year. So this has been an interesting weekend, and we've also seen at the Braves, as we knew, we're not going to win every game, even though they were off to a very hot start. They have run into some trouble against this Houston Astros club and will thus try to salvage the finale on Sunday. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But before we get started here on the show, I want to remind you, as always, to subscribe to From the Diamond, wherever you get your podcast. You can also find it on the Odyssey app, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I'm also on Instagram at Grant McCauley. And you can like the show on Facebook. And if you need links to all of those things and more, you can head on over to fromthediamond.com, and you can find it all there. So that's what's going on as far as connecting with the show. As far as what was going on for the Braves on Saturday, they were wearing those City Connect uniforms, and they're still looking for those first win. And their new threads had an opportunity, I feel like, heading into the middle frames, but it just kind of got away from the Braves and got away from Kyle Wright pretty quickly in the sixth inning. Unfortunately, a couple of key home runs from the Astros. Jordan Alvarez for the second consecutive night. He was the man in the middle of things for the Astros, and that's what you expect out of somebody who's as talented as Alvarez has been and has come up with some big hits for the Astros in his young career and figures to stick around there for quite some time and be in the middle of all the good things going on for that club. He was there again. Two-run homer to go ahead against A.J. Minter in the first game, helped the Astros win that one, and his two-run homer put the Astros ahead again on Saturday. So it was deja vu all over again in the words of the great Yogi Berra. But the Braves... I feel like I've had opportunities in both of these games. They're just trying to find that big hit. Haven't been able to thus far. Trying to hold on to a lead. I mean, we haven't seen too many games in which the bullpen hasn't been able to at least hold it and keep it close. And when you're talking about three, well, nearly, yeah, actually, three weeks worth of baseball, did not have a game where you've looked at the bullpen and said, wow, what in the world happened? That was just kind of a rough night for that group. That's a pretty good run. Brian Snitker talked about that before the game yesterday and said, look, you know, we're going to have some of those. That's just baseball. It's the way it is. But the beauty of it is you get a new game every single day. It may sound kind of trite or cliche, but if you're in baseball for long enough, you start to realize, hey, there is a new game pretty much every day until there's not. And the Braves are going to have a new game on Sunday as they try to avoid a sweep at the hands of the Astros and then continue this homestand with a four-game set against the Miami Marlins. will be our first look at that club, and I think that's going to be an interesting matchup, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show as well. Uh, as we look at what was going on in the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, you might look at the standings and feel a little bit better to know the Braves are still in first place. Mets also lost on Saturday. Atlanta's off to a good start. New York's off to a pretty good start. And both of these teams, they're not at full strength. They're dealing with some injuries. 
We knew the Mets rotation was a little bit older, and we knew with some of that age was going to come the possibility of injury. And we've also seen, and one of the most bizarre stories of the week, Max Scherzer was suspended for 10 games for violating the foreign substance policy in the eyes of the umpires, who are the arbiters of this thing, on a between-inning search of his pitching hand. They determined that he was using something more than sweat and rosin, and Max Scherzer vehemently denies that that's the fact. We'll hear from him a little bit later in this show as well. It was a really bizarre scene, but... As you do look at the NLE standings, you do see the Braves at the top of the division. That's where they would like to stay, and they are off to a much better start here in 2023 than they got off to certainly in 2022 and 2021 as well. So if they're able to continue this winning and going, it kind of stands to reason the Braves are a club that really seems to find that next gear as the summer wears on or as you get into those summer months. What could that look like this year when you don't have to dig out of, I don't know, being 10 and a half games out of first place on Memorial Day? That'd be pretty nice if you didn't have to deal with that again, and perhaps the Braves are well on their way to not having to deal with that. This is also a club that's going to be looking to get healthy, and we got some good updates on a number of different Braves because as you do look at, say, a game like uh, Friday's that got away from Atlanta because of the bullpen, well, you may have Colin McHugh back as soon as early this week against the Marlins, and you may have Rysel Iglesias back yeah, maybe by the time you start to turn the calendar to the month of May. At least he's making progress, though he will need to throw some more and go out on a rehab assignment, it'd be nice to finally have your closer at the back end of your bullpen. That's something the Braves have been missing thus far this year and have done a pretty good job of covering for. But eventually, you are going to find those nights where when you didn't have a couple of key arms, you push people into other jobs. And that's something Brian Snitker talked a lot about before Saturday's game. Is you know These guys have, guys have done a nice job of stepping in where they have been asked to, but you want to get to full strength so that you have the guys that are brought in for leverage situations to be able to be used there because not only not having Colin McHugh pushes, say, Jesse Chavez and Dylan Lee into different roles, not having Rysel Iglesias pretty much reserves A.J. Mentor for the ninth inning. And I feel like over the last couple of years, A.J. Mentor has become perhaps the Braves' best-rounded weapon in the bullpen to utilize whether it's the seventh or the eighth inning. He's been a guy that can come in and get some pretty big outs. I mean, Friday notwithstanding, you know, they, you're going to make some mistakes. You're, you're going to give up some runs at some point. But by and large, A.J. Mentor has been the Braves' best reliever at the very least, since opening day of 2022, he's been on a pretty good run. It'd be nice to be able to utilize him in the role in which he could be setting up for Rysel Iglesias being able to close things down again. At least that's the idea. And we'll see when he can get Iglesias back. But the good news is he is finally facing hitters. He's been throwing off a mound. And as you know, after getting shut down in spring training, it was going to take a while to ramp him back up. He's going to need a rehab assignment. And then the Braves will be able to kind of chart the path for getting their closer back and getting this bullpen a little bit more Organized, But despite all that, I mean, the Braves have had, in, in all of MLB, either a top five to top ten bullpen in terms of just the overall results. There's a lot of attrition in these groups. I mean, it's, it's tough to build a great bullpen, and nobody's going to be perfect. So it's been one of the strengths, I think, for the Braves over the last couple of years anyway. You go back to the night shift that really turned things on for this club and certainly pitched their lights out in the month of October that year. That's kind of, I think, set the bar, the expectation for the Braves. You want to have a bullpen you can depend on, and I think that they will this year. And we'll see how it all plays out once they get up to full strength. Now, as you look at some of the other big updates as far as health is concerned, was at the ballpark last night before the game, watching batting practice, and saw a couple of guys that we haven't seen in the cage for a little while. Finally getting some swings in on the field. It was good to see Michael Harris the second, who's been dealing with that lower back strain. He was back in the batting cage. He's out in center field running around doing some baseball activities. That is nothing but a good sign. Got to hear from Michael a couple of days ago. It appears that 
he's trending in the right direction. And I know that low back strain has had a lot of people kind of, uh, I don't know if it discouraged or maybe worried a little bit might be the, the way to put it, at least from what I'm reading online. It's, you know, you, you get a lot of, well, it was only supposed to be a few days. I thought this was just precautionary. But if you've ever had a back ailment, I can tell you this. You try to push it a little bit too far too fast, and you're going to find out that a little thing might become a big thing, and the Braves do not want that to be the case with somebody as talented and as important to their plans. I mean, they don't want to happen to anybody, but you certainly don't want to be without Michael Harris for a long period of time. So uh, he is making some progress, but uh, really great to see Travis Darno uh, back in the batting cage. Of course, he's dealing with a concussion he suffered a couple of weeks ago in the Padres series. He's had a history of concussions in his career. This is his fourth one. So clearly, and as we know now in the year 2023, and we've known for a while, you have to take these kind of things seriously. And it's not just, you know, how did he look? Did he feel fine while he was, you know, out there, you know, doing athletic activity? It's, well, how did he feel after that? You know, how is he feeling in between games? You know, how is he sleeping? All of these different things. You want to make sure that he's had the adequate time to kind of get over that and put it behind him so that he's able to resume all of the things, especially for a position as demanding as catcher. You kind of run that risk a little bit more than any other position on the diamond, most certainly. And we found out, again, with Travis Darno a couple of weeks ago, but he was able to catch a side session, so he's back behind the plate, and he was able to go out and do some hitting on the field. Looked pretty good, and hopefully we'll hear from Travis in the coming days and get a little bit clearer timetable for when exactly he could be back, not only in the harness behind the plate for the Braves, but at the very least back in the lineup, because I think we can look at the last couple of days and say the Braves have a couple of holes in the lineup. At the top of the order, Ronald Acuna Jr.'s look great this year. I know everybody wants to see more home runs. I think those are going to come in time, but a lot of multi-hit games, a lot of stolen bases, a lot of runs scored, and he just looks like a completely different player than he did a year ago. So if you're not encouraged about what you're seeing from Ronald thus far this year and just kind of worried about the home runs, stay tuned because I think that's, those are going to come. There was one last night, I believe in his third at bat, it was a, a deep drive to right center field and didn't get out of the ballpark, but everyone's kind of looked at what's the launch angle. You know, Ronald's hitting the ball hard, but he's not lifting the ball. Well, he hit one that had, I believe, about a 930 expected batting average. It just happened to run out of gas, I guess, on the warning track and stay in the ballpark. But he's hitting the ball hard. And some of these are going to start to leave. And then all of a sudden, that 40-40 tracker that I've been doing over on Twitter, again, at Grant McCauley, that thing's going to get a little bit more evened out. Because if you were watching the game last night, Ronald was immediately off to the races, stole two bases in the first inning, and stole another later in the game. That gives him 11 stolen bases on the year. That makes him the major league stolen base leader. At least it did at the close of last night's game. And there are a lot of other games going on. I haven't looked at the scoreboard minute by minute. But Ronald Acuna Jr., among the stolen base leaders in all of baseball, that has to make you feel pretty good about, A, how he's able to affect the game, and B, knowing that he's pretty confident in that leg. And I think we've seen it this year, that everything as far as injury is concerned from 2021 that might have you know, carried on over into 2022 is nothing that he's spending a lot of time worrying about now. He said it back in spring training, I'm 100%. And he's been showing he is indeed 100%. Uh, big highlights, though, from the first four or so weeks of this year. I think you got to put Bryce Elder toward the top of that list. He did it again on Friday night against Houston. Six innings of one-run ball. The, the run was unearned. Uh, he does give up some hard contact here and there, but Bryce Elder is somebody who I think does – he takes his skill set and he applies it about as well as any young pitcher you'll see because he attacks the strike zone. And he allows his defense to do the work, and I think that's something that he depends on and counts on and is looking for is, hey, I'm okay with generating some hard contact as long as it's on the ground because when you get the chance to do that, you can have a defender there, and a lot of times those ground balls will turn into outs. And that was the case for Bryce Elder. Again, six strikeouts against Houston as well. He's just continued to look great. He's made four starts for the Braves, and it's coming up from AAA Gwinnett. And I don't think that anybody doubted that Bryce Elder could make a contribution 
to the rotation. I just don't know that anybody expected him to pitch his way out to a 1.14 ERA, leading the staff in that category. If you're into the old-school pitching uh, categories, that's a pretty good one. And also be able to give the Braves kind of the stability that they needed at the back end of that rotation, and in particular, when you didn't have Max Fried. And when two other rookies kind of struggled in their opportunities to start the year, Bryce Elder was called upon, jumped right back in, and kind of picked up right where he left off in 2022. So very good to see that, very encouraging to see that. And oh, by the way, this rotation got Max Fried back in the Padres series. This rotation got Kyle Wright back, and he's now made three starts. I know that the sixth inning kind of went sideways on him last night, but overall, I think you've got to be encouraged by what you know that Kyle Wright and, of course, Max Fried are capable of, the way that Bryce Elder is pitching, and the way that things are trending for the Atlanta Braves in that rotation seems to look pretty good as they send Max Fried to the mound again on Sunday. We got a lot to get to on this edition of From the Diamond. We're going to hear from one of the big surprises, big highlights for the Atlanta Braves in the first four weeks of the season. His name is Sam Hilliard. You're going to hear from him next as we continue right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. It is a Sunday right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we continue our discussion of the week that was for the Braves, the weekend that still is, at least for the remainder of Sunday, as we sit here on a Sunday morning discussing what has been going on with this Atlanta club, which for the most part, or as I would like to say, by and large this year, has been off to a good start. This weekend, though, has been a couple of speed bumps, a couple of comebacks by the Houston Astros who showed you that. Uh, they may have come into Atlanta under 500. They weren't going to stay there all year. And, in fact, they have found their way just above that 500 mark with their win on Saturday and securing a series victory against the Atlanta Braves. Now, as we've talked about uh, really over the first three weeks, I don't know if we've talked about anything more than the amount of injuries that this club has dealt with. It, it just seemed like for at least a little while, every couple of days, somebody else was going down with a melody. It, it started in spring training when you found out Kyle Wright and Rysel Iglesias weren't going to be available for opening day. Then you get to opening day, and Max Fried strains his hamstring. Then Michael Harris with a back, Travis Darnot with a concussion, Orlando Arcia with the microfracture in his wrist. I mean, Colin McHugh with the shoulder inflammation. We're not talking about the 24th, 5th, 6th man on the roster. And like Honestly, we don't want anybody to get injured at any point, but you're talking about six major contributors to the ideal 26-man roster for this club. That's a point I've made over and over and over again, and every club's going to deal with injuries. But to see all of that happen and – what seemed like the span of a couple of weeks once you started the season. And yes, a couple of those guys, it dated back to spring training, but you haven't yet been able to put your team at full strength. And what that does is it means that other guys are going to have to step up. It means that all that depth you went out there for the winter and we're hoping to have in place just in case something went wrong, some of those guys were going to have to step in and make some major contributions. I talked about Michael Harris the second he took batting practice on Saturday prior to the game. He's been running as well. He was out in the outfield shagging fly balls the last couple of days. All of those are positive signs because there was a while, I know I was asked about this quite a bit on Twitter, you know, what's the deal with Michael Harris? This was supposed to be four or five days that he was shut down. He was supposed to be back and available in the Padres series. Brace sent him home. He's been rehabbing at home, getting treatment, doing all of his stuff uh, with the club coming back against the Astros, obviously, this weekend. Now we're starting to get eyes on Michael Harris, and we're seeing him on the field, and that certainly is a good thing. But in the absence of Harris, who's dealing with that lower back strain, Sam Hilliard has come over to the Atlanta Braves. And Sam is an interesting case because it's not like he's particularly long in the tooth, clearly not a prospect when he spent parts of, what, four or five years in the major leagues with the Colorado Rockies. And he was a pretty well-regarded athlete and, and prospect for them and an opportunity to, I think, step into maybe an outfield role there. But 
for whatever reason, over the last couple of years, it just really didn't pan out for him. He wasn't able to get the numbers going. He wasn't able to you know, generate enough productivity, even in a place like Coors Field, to lock himself into a spot there. And this happens sometimes with players where you know, maybe it doesn't work out in that first place. They get that change of scenery. They come to a new ball club. Maybe they get reinvigorated. But I had a chance to catch up with Sam Hilliard to see if it was as simple as that, which I know it's not, or to find out if there's maybe been some things he's been working on quite a bit to get himself back to the level and to the level that he's playing at now because he's looking as good over the first three weeks as you possibly could have asked for. I asked Brian Snitker about this prior to the series starting. Like, what were your expectations really with Sam Hilliard? And he said, I didn't have any because I hadn't gotten to know him yet. But having gotten to know him and watch him play, this is a guy with a a serious tool set. He can play center field well. He runs well. He's hitting well. He's getting on base. He's doing a lot of things that the Braves need, a lot of things that they envisioned Michael Harris II doing for him, but he wasn't available. And now you got Sam Hilliard playing in his stead. So I want you to hear my chat with Braves center fielder Sam Hilliard, who has been filling in quite admirably for the Atlanta club over the last couple of weeks in the absence of Harris. And here it is on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Obviously, we're a few weeks into the season. You've gotten, I think, quite an opportunity here. The life of a player is be ready when that opportunity comes. What's it been like getting into the mix here with this new club? Yeah, it's been fun, you know, getting to play um, a little bit more than I expected out of the gate. Obviously, uh, unfortunate circumstances is what uh, made that happen. You know, you don't want to see anybody get hurt, especially your teammate, young superstar like Mike. But uh, like I said, it's given me an opportunity to go play center. And, you know, uh, throughout my career, I haven't seriously solidified myself as an everyday player. So, I've kind of gotten used to, you know, knowing how to get ready off the bench. So, yeah, um, felt like that was no surprise for me. I, I knew kind of how to do it and how to get ready, and I've been hoping to take advantage of this opportunity. What, if anything, over the winter were you working on that may have just clicked into place in a new club? Because I know a lot of people say, you know, just change the scenery, whatever it may be. But there's a lot of hard work that goes on, obviously, yeah. in between seasons and day to day. Yeah, I, I do think change scenery was helpful. For sure. But, um, you know, for me, it stems back to the last month of the season last year. I got sent down to AAA to finish the year off, and I decided to scrap most of the stuff I'd been working on for the last couple years and go back to what I felt like got me to the big leagues in the first place. Uh, I didn't really feel like myself, uh, so I just wanted to feel athletic in the box, stand up a little taller, get my hands in a different position, and uh, pretty much clear the mind and let, yeah. let the body, you know, be an athlete. So. That seemed to work for me, and I, I was managed to get myself into a good position, start making some good moves at the baseball, and I felt like myself again, and just tried to carry that feeling over into the offseason, worked on that all offseason, and um, had a good spring, and you know, I'm still feeling good. Is that something you come to naturally? I mean, obviously, you can look at the numbers and say, hey, these aren't where I want them to be, but was it something that you were just kind of feeling, or something that you bounced off a couple of people that helped you kind of get back to the essence of what you wanted to be? Uh, it was something I just kind of felt, you know. Um, I always kind of knew I was that guy. I struggled a little bit early in my career in the big leagues and made some adjustments here and there, and then it kind of got out of hand to where I kind of forgot who I used to be. Um, And then just looking at video by myself, talking to old coaches, college coaches, like they kind of helped me get back into that spot. And it just kind of clicked for me after a couple games in AAA last year at the end. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what that feeling used to feel like. You know, I had to actually have the courage to try it in a game, you know, because it's hard to just make a change like that. You know, you want to perform. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, after a couple games of, of trying it, I got that feeling back and, um, you know, trying to hang on to it. Yeah. A lot of people look at Colorado as this unique place for hitters. It has its own background, I guess, if you will, as somebody who played there and was a hitter there. Does that ever creep into the mentality just because of the, the change of altitude or whatever it may be? Because the results at Coors Field over the years have been a lot different than a lot of other ballparks. Yeah, it is certainly different. Um, 
you know, for me, a lot of people think, oh, Coors Field, like a bunch of homers. And mm-hmm. That's true. Obviously, the ball does carry a little bit more. But uh, I think the biggest advantage for hitters there is how big – it's the biggest outfield in baseball. Yeah. It's got way more room for hits to fall in. So, like, guys would get more base hits, I think. And then, you know, you get a couple on, you hit a blast, and then the runs kind of pile up. But uh, for me, the biggest challenge in Colorado was constantly going from altitude to sea level, back to altitude, back to sea level. Uh, it takes a huge toll on the body. Mm-hmm pitches do different things like if a guy has a really good curveball it's going to be a little bit better in LA than it is in in Denver so like you land in LA you're getting ready to play the Dodgers and then all of a sudden these pitches are nastier than they were all homestand it's like okay by the time you adjust your three games into a series and you know it's it's hard so um, it's fun it certainly has its advantages and, and disadvantages what has this club been like as you come in, you know, have that change of scenery, new team, opportunity obviously early on, you know, and those come from a lot of different ways. But you know, this is a club that's done a lot of winning over the last five years. I imagine that was a pretty attractive thing about joining this team over the winter. Yeah, you said it, man. Um, you know, they've proven year after year how good they are. And, uh, you know, I didn't know who I was going to get traded to. I didn't know what was going to happen. But when I found out it was the Braves, I was extremely happy. And, um, you know, I knew I had a little bit of an opportunity to come in here and make an impact and get myself into the lineup. and. The thing that sticks out for me the most is the uh, just the culture and the environment in the clubhouse. The guys, you know, show up every day expecting to win, and uh, they carry themselves that way, and they, they take it very seriously, and um, while still having fun, you know, like got here, the guys were super welcoming. There's no like guys on the team that are big time veterans think they're too good for you, nothing like that. Um, you know, we hang out with each other off the field. We're, we have a lot of fun, but when it, it's time to play, you know, it's all about winning. So I really, really am enjoying that. Were there some guys that you were familiar with, either kind of playing against a little bit or maybe playing with that at I some point in your career? With. Yeah. Um, Bryce Elder, I worked out with him in the offseason a couple of years. And other than that, I played with Kevin Pillar in Colorado in 2020. Yeah. He got traded over. Uh, but other than that, it's like maybe I played against Riley and a couple other of these guys in the minor leagues a couple times. I didn't really know any, anybody else. So I kind of came in first day of school type feeling, trying to make new friends. Yeah. But, uh, you know. These guys are great, so it wasn't too hard. Yeah, I asked Snit a little bit yesterday just about when you came in and for any player that you just are kind of getting to know, like what was your expectation, what kind of role were you thinking about? He said, really, I had no expectation. But what I did learn very quickly is that Sam has a lot of tools and you've been able to use those, whether it's in center field, on the bases, at the plate. It just seems like everything's kind of clicking, so all the work that you've been doing obviously has kind of gotten you to where you want to be and with a lot of the season left to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, for me, I feel like the thing that always holds me back is – my ability to just get on base and, and put the ball in play and like and I think my role in the big league so far not playing that much has made that difficult for me to kind of get in a groove but I feel like when I start playing and I start getting into a groove and I start getting on base and I, I have an opportunity to let my tools play and uh, I feel good at the plate right now and I feel like if I keep this thing going then I can really help this team and we can make this thing a good season. That's Braves outfielder Sam Hilliard. What a great job he's done in center field thus far. And I know it takes a lot of players, uh, far beyond just a 26-man roster, to get through the course of a 162-game season. If there's been a lesson that the Braves have learned in this first chapter, if you want to call April that, you're going to deal with some injuries. And Sam Hilliard has been one of the highlights for this club in stepping in. I talked about Bryce Elder when I opened the show, just about highlights of this first month or so. You're dealing with a rotation that was kind of ravaged by injuries and had a couple of rookies that were taking some lumps at the big league level. You needed to have somebody to lean on. And Bryce Elder was able to come up and be more than just an acceptable fifth starter and a guy that just was going to come up and eat some innings. He was able to give you some quality starts. And we're seeing the same kind of thing out of Sam Hilliard as well. 
Uh, as far as what Sam has been doing in center field for the Braves, batting 333 with an on-base percentage well over 400 in the early going, uh, a handful of stolen bases. He's scored eight runs in 14 games. He's drawn his walks. He's just doing a lot of things, and we've seen a couple of very nice plays out in center field as well. Now, the Braves are going to need more out of left field. I think that might be the understatement of the show thus far, but we're only about half an hour in, so stick with me. Maybe we'll have a couple of more of those. Marcelo Zuna hasn't really given them anything there or at DH, and we're going to talk about that a lot later. Don't worry. Eddie Rosario, Kevin Pillar, they haven't posted great numbers either, but both have had their moments. I think Pillar has played, defensively speaking, about as well as any Atlanta left fielder I can remember, not named Adam Duvall in quite some time. So it's been good to see that. But could Sam Hilliard fit in left field once you get Michael Harris back? I think that's a question a lot of folks have been kind of wondering because of all the outfielders that they brought in, and I know that Pilar and Eli White in particular, they haven't had the same amount of at-bats that Hilliard has had. But Sam Hilliard, I mean, I think the profile for offensive player and defensive player makes him somebody worth exploring in left field because you've got to get more out of those two spots. Uh, more good news on the injury front, as I mentioned, Travis Darno feeling better, so that could help out at DH because you can have Darno back in the mix there. You could also have him back in the mix behind the plate, which means that Sean Murphy could be in the mix at DH. Uh, as uh, Travis was able to take his BP on Saturday, Brian Snitker said the team is really observing you know, how he feels after that activity so they can know how well he's recovered from that concussion, which, again, was his fourth. And then they can kind of put a timetable on this. But it does appear to be some really positive signs for Darno. And as I mentioned, he and Michael Harris both taking batting practice yesterday. Just gives you a little bit of a reminder and maybe a little bit of hope that the Braves are going to start getting closer to full strength as this week wears on. Uh, speaking of getting to full strength, talked about the bullpen a little bit early in the show and uh, just what it's going to mean to get back some key arms for them. We well, had Colin McHugh out for the last couple of weeks dealing with some shoulder inflammation, uh, discomfort there. He was able to go up to single-A Rome. I was up there for his first rehab outing, which was on Tuesday, and talking to him after that, he said, hey, everything felt normal. That's what I wanted. Get out there, do the rehab, get my pitches in, and see how I feel the next day. And apparently he felt pretty good because he went back to Rome a couple of days later, and he tossed three scoreless innings, super efficient, 34 pitches. Now, Colin's not going to be asked to do a lot of three-inning relief stints for the Braves. I don't think that's going to be really uh, what his forte is going to be, and if it is, that means something's probably gone wrong in the rotation again. So let's, let's stick to multiple inning guy, uh, multiple outs, maybe beyond three. But either way, uh, having Colin McHugh back, I think could really help some of these other relievers slot into uh, you know, better and more advantageous positions and matchups because McHugh was a huge part of the Braves' bullpen success a year ago. Uh, everything looked good, three scoreless innings. Uh, that makes four and two-thirds scoreless on his rehab assignment this past week. And talking to Colin yesterday, it sounds like he could be ready to be activated. He's going to need a couple of days after throwing the three innings. But uh, the Marlins series looks like a pretty realistic timetable to get Colin McHugh back in after those couple of rehab outings. As I talked about as well with Rysel Iglesias, he is making progress. Saw Rysel in the Braves clubhouse yesterday. Seems to be in good spirits. And Brian Snitker talked about you know the fact that he's been throwing sides. And Rysel Iglesias will actually throw a live batting practice session or face live hitters on Monday. And that's the next thing. Once you've thrown a couple of sides, you got to go out and face some hitters. And for Rysel, it's been about a month or so, a little more than a month, since he was shut down with that shoulder inflammation in spring training. So he'll face some live hitters, and they can kind of figure out their rehab assignment time frame, and then they can figure out when they can get him back in their mix for the first time in 2023. That would be quite nice. Well, that's what's going on this week for the Atlanta Braves. We've got a lot more Braves talk coming up a little bit later on, but when we come back, I've got Victor Rojas, the longtime voice of the Los Angeles Angels. He's going to join me to talk about that club, to talk about the future of Shohei Otani, who... Maybe the biggest free agent sweepstakes we ever see in our lifetime, at least 
to this point. We may find out this winter what Shohei Otani is able to bring home. I'll ask him about that. Maybe even the future of Mike Trout in L.A. That's an interesting discussion. We're going to have all of that next here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Appreciate you spending part of your Sunday morning with me as the Braves are wrapping up a battle with one of their American League West foes and a foe they know very well in the Houston Astros. But I want to keep our focus on the AL West and another team that has generated a lot of headlines year after year but just can't seem to find its way to the promised land. That team, of course, is the LA Angels. and They have two of the biggest stars in all of baseball, but they're still trying to figure out the way to have success in the postseason. Joined now by the longtime voice of the Angels and the host of Angels Win, a podcast you can find wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow him on Twitter at Victor Rojas. So thus, it is Victor Rojas. Victor, great to talk to you. Appreciate you making some time to join the show today. Grant, my pleasure to be here. And uh, any chance I get to talk baseball, I'm always uh, up for it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, this is a great place for it. From the Diamond is the show, and that means we go beyond just the Braves. We like to hit all 30 Major League Baseball teams, and one of them that I think gets a lot of eyes for two very particular reasons, among others, is the Los Angeles Angels. Those two reasons, of course, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. So, Victor, I know that you have had a ringside seat for uh, what I feel like is two of the greatest talents that we've seen in this generation, but the Angels are still looking to build around those two guys, and 2023 just kind of seems to be the latest chapter of that build. Yeah, well, and the question is, is, is it a build now, or sure. will it be a build, depending on how the season plays out, right? Because, uh, you know, with Shohei's impending free agency, it all depends on what uh, the team uh, ultimately does and how it performs. Uh, and uh, when they make the decision... I would imagine it'll be a difficult one to do so if they are out of it come uh, early summer uh, to try to move him and, and try to get some pieces in return. You know, I saw Jeff Passan uh, put a tweet out uh, a couple of days ago talking about that he will indeed hit free agency uh, when the time comes. Maybe that puts a little more pressure on the Angels to perform. But uh, look, right now they're off to a very slow start. Uh, they just finished a, a road trip through Boston and New York, and it was not pretty. And so now they go home to play the Kansas City Royals and the Oakland Athletics, the you know, games that the, they have to win uh, to kind of maintain pace in the American League West. I don't think anybody thought that the West would be uh, shaking out the way it has so far. Houston has had some injuries. They've been dinged up. Seattle certainly hasn't played like they did last year. And Texas, right. uh, well, and, and the Angels obviously uh, falling short, but Texas has taken advantage of the situation, played well taking care of business when they need to. And that's why they're, uh, they're leading the division the way they are. Yeah. I mean, you got to be opportunistic. And if you're the Rangers, not only are they being that, but they've also invested an awful lot in that club to take a big step this season. And we'll see how it all shakes out. There is, as they say, a lot of baseball yet to be played for years. I think angels baseball was Mike Trout and Mike Trout was angels baseball, but I want to save the discussion about him and really key in on Shohei Otani because somehow he managed to one up the greatness of Mike Trout by showing us things I don't think we realize we're possible out of one man on a baseball field. That said, is it possible that there are some people still out there that may not realize exactly how incredible it is what Otani has done because he simply does it so well? well I'm sure there's some people out there that think that, but they've been living under a rock. I mean, uh, if you have any sense whatsoever when it comes to baseball and uh, watching what these guys can do at the highest level, and then to have Shohei basically double that up, right? I mean, he's doing it offensively, doing it as a pitcher. And at the highest level each year, he's in the conversation for MVP and a Cy Young. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. No. 
even when Babe Ruth was still doing uh, the two position thing uh, or prior to making the move to being a, a full-time hitter. So I, look, he was amazing when he came over from Japan. I thought the pressure upon him was much greater than that of Ichiro, anybody else that came over from Japan, just because of the fact it was a two position player. And so I thought early on that he was going to have some struggles getting acclimated to the new culture, dealing with the pressure of, you know, here's this Japanese import that supposedly could do both things and do it at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. And he did. I mean, yeah. that was the amazing thing. He, I remember going back to his first spring training and he had an awful spring training. It was yeah. tough for him. And all of a sudden he made a quick adjustment. So after the Angels play spring training in Arizona, they go home and play a three-game series, a freeway series against the Dodgers. He made this adjustment from the time they left Arizona and prior to playing the Dodgers, just getting rid of a leg kick and just kind of going with a no-stride kind of approach. Nobody does that. I mean, you don't just do that right. uh, at the major league level and get away with it. And he did. And that obviously had a terrific rookie season. And the arm started to hurt and bark, and, but still uh, maintained his composure and still was able to DH and, and contribute and you know be able to come back. And I think the experience has helped him. The years under his belt have helped him. The injury perhaps maybe helped him a little bit uh, that bought him some time uh, to get healthy. He is a specimen. He is a great guy. He is a great teammate. He is funny, uh, great personality. And on top of all that, he is just an amazingly talented player. And you're right. I mean, you you think you've got Mike Trout, and you sit there and go, okay, this guy's the the pinnacle of baseball mm -hmm. as far as baseball players are concerned. And then lo and behold, here comes uh, Shohei Otani uh, that says, uh, here, Mike, why don't you hold my beer? I got I got things to do on both sides of the baseball. So he he is fun to watch um, wherever he ends up. Uh, he'll be he'll be treasured. He really would. I, the question for me is, and I don't want to drone on on this, but the question for me is, how long will he, he be able to sustain it? That's right. that's the only question. Yeah. Both at the high level on both ends. Mm -hmm. um, and I was joking around with somebody. Maybe he just becomes a you know kind of a John Smoltz, right? The elite starting pitcher that became an elite closer at some point, so that you can maintain uh, you know the the peak offensive performance. Uh, as long as possible. And I'm just talking about when the pitching starts to kind of, there's going to be a time when it just kind of flattens out a little bit. I would, I would imagine maybe sure. not with this maybe guy, not. Who knows? but uh, yeah, something to keep in mind for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now I have a theory as well on this and it's probably not a stretch and it may not even be altogether that original, but I feel like Shohei Otani at the least is a $25 million a year hitter. I feel like at the least he's a $25 million a year pitcher right now. So if you do some simple math, we may have a $50 million a year player. And if clubs like the Mets are willing to give a 40-something-year-old ace $40 million a year, is it really that much of a stretch to think that a 29-year-old Shohei Otani out on the free agent market could not top a deal like that with what he has to offer and what he brings to the table? As you just laid it out, it's as unique as it gets. Yeah, I, I think it's very possible, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, there, there could be uniqueness to a structure of a contract that maybe totals $50 million or thereabouts or even north of that. Mm -hmm. I know when uh, the Angels signed Albert Pujols, they gave him that 10-year deal, and then they gave him a 10-year personal services contract at $10 million a year, so it was an extra $100 million on top of that. Uh, look, whoever signed Shohei Otani really needs to do uh, a great job of planting their flag in Japan, the team's flag in Japan. I think that's where perhaps the Angels – maybe missed an opportunity over the last five, six years mm -hmm. to really take hold. Now, there's a lot of Angel fans in Japan. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get to know several of them. I've done a ton of interviews uh, as my time as a, as a broadcaster for the Angels. 
they absolutely love the Angels. They love Shohei Otani and what he's capable of doing. So I think it was a missed opportunity to not be able to go there and open the biggest of Angels Shohei Otani stores across Japan and monetize the living daylights out of it. I think whoever signs him needs to take that opportunity and really try to capitalize on it. Because truth be told, I mean, aside from, let's say, the Yankees or the Mets, and I'm trying to think maybe perhaps the Dodgers, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to have another organization step up and be able to absorb a contract of that magnitude, especially with the way these RSN contracts are starting to regress. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, when you, if you start losing these revenue streams, you know, for the Angels, it's over $100 million. For the Texas Rangers, it's over $100 million a year on on local TV rights deals, where are you going to find that revenue so that you can afford a guy like Shohei Otani? Now, you could have an owner that says, I don't care. I need this guy. We need this guy. This community needs him, and I'll pay for it. Uh, Stephen Cohen could be that perfect guy. Uh, But it's it's difficult when you start (laughs) factoring that in. I think think the Braves would be an unbelievable partner for Shohei, because yeah. the nucleus of that ball club is so young, so locked up, that it could just almost be like the icing on the cake. Um, you know, it'd be National League Baseball. But now, I mean, with interleague and the, the way the schedule is now, you know, I think it's all kind of jumbled together anyway. Um, but I think that'd be a that'd be an amazing opportunity for him, the city of Atlanta, if he were able to go there. Yeah, chatting with Victor Rojas, longtime voice of the Los Angeles Angels. You can find his podcast, Angels Win, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow him on Twitter, at Victor Rojas. He joins me on the WaitFor.com hotline here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Now, here's the part that I think that's hard to fathom, really, and I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but when you look at the Angels having two of the greatest players of this or maybe any generation by the time all said and done, we'll see how that all plays out, but they're both off to really great starts here. You know, Mike Trout has been just that, I think, for this generation. Now, Otani obviously has come in and, you know, is writing his own legacy here. But the Angels haven't been to the playoffs in nearly a decade. That's the only trip for Trout. Obviously, Otani has not had the opportunity to experience that just yet. How do the Angels go about solving this? And how soon do you think that they feasibly can do that? I know the Otani domino, though, is the biggest one that has to fall for the Angels to really be able to map this thing out. Grant, you can almost extrapolate this out even further and wonder, does Mike ever ask for a trade, right? Mm-hmm. He's got a full no-trade clause, and I'm not saying that he would, and I'm saying that I'm not going to start any rumors or he's contemplating any of that. But I'm just thinking, if you start thinking big picture, if you're Mike Trout and this season starts to go south, let's say it does go south, you know, like last year, right? They got off to a great start, middle of May, and all of a sudden, just oh. a straight tank job. Mm-hmm. Injuries happened, Trout got hurt, Rendon got hurt. It was just an awful, awful season across the board. Well, let's say that doesn't, it's not as bad, but it starts to happen in June. If you're going to contemplate trading Shohei Otani, if you're Mike Trout, now you can sit there and say, if you're him, well, look, we I look at the minor league system. There's some guys on the horizon. There's some pretty good talent down there. We've got a couple of guys right now in Ohapi and Neto that mm-hmm. are rookies. Shoot, Neto just got drafted at Campbell last year, university. So maybe he does stick around. But there could be a frustration point where he says, I, I just want to experience championship baseball yearly. You know, maybe he does pull that trigger. And you, you talk about a straight reboot. Not only a reboot, but it'd be a quick reboot. Imagine trading Shohei Otani, and if Trout gave you the okay to just trade him, 
the amount of talent that you should expect back in return, especially with Trout already being locked up for a couple more years, that'd be insane. I don't know if I'd want to be the general manager in charge of getting the return package of players, but he's still a great player. And I think he's still a guy that I think the Angels obviously want to keep and want to build around. I think the Angels should sign Shohei Otani. I think they should have taken care of business in the offseason, but it, perhaps maybe their management team, Shohei's management team, wants to test the market just to see. So I, I think it'll just see how it plays out. But I, it, it's got to be a little bit frustrating for Angels fans. I know it is frustrating for Angels fans to have two generational players and not have everything else aligned with it, meaning the pitching side, the defensive side, the bullpen side. Yeah. To have these guys be able to put up you know, three, four, five runs a day and have it shut down. They can't do that. They mm. haven't been able to run two parallel paths alongside these two great players. And I think that's the most frustrating part. Yeah, it takes a lot of different aspects to build a winning ball club. And if you have a great offense but no starting pitching, you're going to win a certain amount of games. Same thing is true yep. for having great pitching and not enough offense. We've seen this in you know, trying to build that club that can do it all is difficult. And when you get a window of contention, you kind of have to make the most of it. I feel like that's something that the Braves have done extremely well. Perry Manassian is the man who right now is going to be in charge of making some very big decisions, it sounds like, for the Los Angeles Angels as their GM. Perry has experience under the Braves tree as well, and I'm sure he'd like to bring some of that to Southern California and see if it can help out. But when it comes to $400 million contracts, Mike Trout already has one. Let me close out with this, Victor. Do you think the Angels could absorb having two $400-plus million players on their roster? And if they do, in bringing back Otani to team with Trout for even longer, do you feel like they'll have enough to be able to build the roster around those two guys to finally turn the corner and get this club back into October? It's a great question because Artie Moreno, the team owner, has owner shown the propensity to go out and sign guys to big long-term contracts, even when wasn't expected. The offseason in which they signed Albert Pujols and C.J. Wilson. Mm -hmm. And then the following offseason signed Josh Hamilton. You know, they didn't get Garrett Cole, so they go out and give $200-plus million to Anthony Rendon. The question becomes, does he have a pallet for it? Because after doling out those contracts, they've got nothing out of it, right? One wild card round and getting knocked out by the Kansas City Royals in 2014. Yeah. And that was a pretty good team. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest question right now, because of the way the local TV revenue might dry up, you have to find other avenues to try to generate that revenue, right? They finally sold patches on their uniforms. They don't have a naming rights partner on their stadium. There's a lot of variables that go into it. I can see it happening, but I can also see the flip side where I already said, I'd like to dip my toe in the water, but if it's going to go north of this, I'm out because that's just the way he is. And then all of a sudden you're, you're talking about trading a guy in season if it's a bad year or just letting him walk in the offseason, which would be a shame. It yeah. really would because he, he, you have a player that chose Southern California. He chose the Angels. There's a lot to be said for that. So you hope that there is still something pulling at the heartstrings, but at the end of the day, if the WBC is any indication and he got a taste of that winning thing, which is paramount for a lot of guys, especially great players, you know, there better be some movement towards that or I can see him walking for sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I don't think that there will be more eyes and more scrutiny over somebody's free agency perhaps in any point in our lifetime. And there have been some big free agencies. Yeah. There have been some big off-season stories. There's been a lot of movement on the hot stove, which we all look forward to. But, man, I, I just don't even know how to handicap what the Shohei Otani sweepstakes could look like. But that, I guess, is the fun of it. We'll let it all play out in front yeah. of us. And 
we'll all be here reacting to it. Victor, I appreciate all the time. I look forward to chatting with you again throughout the course of the summer. And hopefully, as we do have a lot of baseball left to be played, the Angels are able to write a story that their fans are going to enjoy and perhaps one that will help them keep one of the truly greatest players in baseball in tow with one of the other truly greatest players in baseball. (laughs) Victor, appreciate it so much. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Grant. When we come back, we'll cover some of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball in the week that was, and we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond. Welcome back into From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on a Sunday morning. As we wind our way toward the afternoon hour two of the show, thanks again to Victor Rojas, longtime voice of the Los Angeles Angels. He's got a great new podcast, Angels Win. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast. What great insight on Shohei Otani heading into free agency is definitely what it sounds like. And if the Angels fall out of contention, which seems to be more of a win than an if uh, in recent years, or really for the past decade, could we be seeing the last of Shohei Otani as a member of the Los Angeles Angels? Just a lot of great insight there, and I thought it was very fun to think about if you're looking for trade partners for a certain Mr. Otani around the deadline, how good would he look in a Braves uniform and what in the world would it cost to get him here? I mean, I know you may not be able to keep him for the 10 years after that because it might be a little cost prohibitive for just about any club. Somebody's going to sign him. Somebody's going to give him a ton of money. I don't know if necessarily that uh, is what you worry about, though. If you have a chance to add Otani for a World Series run and you can get it done, you got to at least kick the tires. And I would imagine just about any GM that's in the race and can figure out a way to add a player like that might just start getting creative around the middle to later portion of July after Otani's done, probably amazing the world with the things that only he can do. Uh, Be that as it may, let's take a look around the big leagues to some of the other big stories from the week that was in Major League Baseball. We're going to start with one of the biggest ones because when a team relocates, it doesn't happen too terribly often. In fact, the last time that it happened was the Montreal Expos becoming the Washington Nationals prior to the 2005 season. It just is not a thing that we see too often. I think prior to that, you had to go into the early 70s, late 60s, when the Seattle Pilots moved to Milwaukee, became the Brewers. I mean, this is just not something that happens very often in baseball. And I say all that to say that the Oakland Athletics may not be the Oakland Athletics for much longer. They may be moving into their fourth city. Because I'll give you a history lesson. I'm going to have Kyle Glazer of Baseball America on a little bit later. But this is a team that started in Philadelphia, a team that moved to Kansas City, a team that then moved to Oakland in the late 60s and has been playing in the same ballpark Uh, for the better part of five and a half decades. And that ballpark, of course, is the Oakland Coliseum. And I wouldn't want to be in charge of the Yelp reviews for that place because it hasn't been too great in recent years. They've got infestation problems. They've got uh, overall structural problems. They've got sewage problems. I mean, if there's a problem that a building can have, I'm pretty sure the Oakland Coliseum has it. The the fact that it hasn't simply fallen down uh, from just not being taken care of is in and of itself a minor miracle. But the Oakland Athletics, this has been a saga in all seriousness that has gone on for quite some time about trying to get a new ballpark in that area. And it, whether it's on the side of the Coliseum or somewhere else, they have not been able to make any headway whatsoever. Now, this is both going to be from an ownership perspective. There's some responsibility there. And, of course, from the city politically, there's a lot of hoops and nuance to negotiations to get a new ballpark. The Oakland Athletics, though, on the move to Las Vegas. That's the report from this week. And uh, they have signed a binding agreement to purchase land near the Las Vegas Strip and then they would build a new Major League ballpark, and their team president, Dave Cavall, confirmed all of that on Wednesday night. The agreement is for a nearly 50-acre site in which they would break ground next year, a $1.5 billion, 35,000-foot stadium with a partially retractable roof, all of those other things, adding to some developments around it. I mean, you think about the battery. I would imagine a lot of teams across baseball and all sports have been taking notes from what the Braves have built 
uh, around their ballpark, and I'm sure that the, the A's would love to have that around theirs. Then uh, the A's are going to work with Nevada and Clark County on a public-private partnership to fund that stadium, and the A's hope to break ground next year and could move there uh, in time to play the 2027 season. So uh, we're going to parse through all of this, and again, I'm going to have Kyle Glazer of Baseball America join me a little bit later for some insight on this because it clearly – there were a lot of moving parts to this, and it has a lot of ramifications, both for Oakland and for Vegas, for the A's, for A's fans, all of those things. But Athletics President Dave Cavall did appear on MLB Network Radio. I want you to take a listen to how exactly he described all of this, summed all of this up, and uh, gives you a little bit of an idea what exactly it is the athletics organization is thinking through all of this. Here's Dave Cavall from MLB Network Radio. Now to know that, hey, there's a path forward in Las Vegas that could work. And we have an incredible stadium that we can build there with an amazing vision of a ballpark village and the success that the other teams have had there uh, to be part of that, to be a team in Major League Baseball that um, operates, you know, at the high end, both on the payroll side, as well as the investment and the resources that we have. That's exciting. And, you know, we all want to win more world championships and represent the league in an effective way on a national and global level. And we think with this plan, we can do that. And so I think there's a lot of excitement around it. There's obviously some sadness and, you know, disappointment that we weren't able to put it together in Oakland. But we made one hell of an effort. Six years of work, you know, $100 million, lots of ups and downs. People have worked very hard on this, the city, the county, the state. Uh, But at the end of the day, the timeline to move forward in Oakland is just prohibitive. In, in making this work. And look, I don't doubt that. Again, that's Dave Cavall, the president of the Oakland Athletics. And this is a saga that's been going on for not just the last five years and not even since they got new ownership. It's been going on for probably the last two decades. They've been playing in the Coliseum since 1968. Clearly, there's some infrastructure problems, among other things, that have become a big issue for the Oakland club. And one of the reasons why they could be heading out to Vegas. We're going to talk a lot more about this when Kyle Glaser of Baseball America joins me uh, here in the next segment. But we've got some other stories we want to get to. But I, I will say this, and just kind of summing up before we have the larger discussion later, I do feel bad for Oakland A's fans. And before you joke, I promise you, there's Oakland A's fans out there, and I'm sure they're disappointed about the team that has called Oakland home since 1968 could be heading out to Las Vegas. It very much took a big step in that direction this week. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball has changed some rules over the years, and one of those is to try to crack down on pitchers using sticky substances. And Max Scherzer, the longtime ace pitcher uh, for the Tigers, for the Nationals, and now for the, for the Mets, he found himself getting ejected from a game in between innings when the umpires did their routine search to see if he had anything on his person or on his hands. He says that he did not have anything illegal on there, but uh, that did not really matter as he was tossed out of the game um, he is going to be fined $5,000 as well, a 10-game suspension. That's an automatic suspension that comes with that. And unfortunately for Scherzer, Phil Cousy, the home plate umpire, decided, hey, you got to go. Uh, Scherzer did explain exactly what he told umpires and what his take was to New York reporters after that. Take a listen to this. What did Phil say after you clearly explained that to him on the field? He said, my hand's too sticky. And I said, I swear on my kid's life, I'm not using anything else. This is sweat and rosin, sweat and rosin. I keep saying it over and over. And they touch my hand, they say it's sticky. And i like, yes, it is because it's sweat and rosin. And they say it's too sticky. It's not, and it, it, they threw me out because of that. 
Now, according to a report from the Associated Press, is Phil Cuzzy. Uh, the pronunciation is correct. We love to do that here on the show. Uh, he checked Scherzer after the third inning and saw too much rosin on the glove, made him change gloves, checked him again in the fourth, and said his hand was even stickier and worse than before. That's why he got the ejection. Uh, Scherzer is going to serve that 10-game suspension, which for a starting pitcher, of course, uh, is going to cost him a couple of starts. And for somebody who makes $43 million a year, uh, the money that uh, he's going to lose from being on the suspended list, not just the fine, but the suspension, is not a small matter either. Uh, MLB, speaking of rules changes, they're eyeing some more of these, and I can't tell you that I love all of the ideas that they've come up with here. They're going to do it again in the Atlantic League. This is where they did bigger bases, limited pickoffs, all the other things, the pitch clock, uh, among others. They're going to do something called a designated pinch runner, which is exactly what you would expect it to be, a runner who does not have to necessarily be in the lineup but can come in and do some running for you. Um, my reaction to this is whatever. I don't really think it's necessary, but it is a thing that apparently they're going to try out. Will it reach Major League Baseball? I don't know. They do have something else that they might try out called the double hook, which is if your starting pitcher can't make it through five innings, you lose your designated hitter. I think this is probably one of the most short-sighted things that you could possibly do because we just got done going through this whole exercise about how nobody wants to see pitchers hit. So now you want to penalize a team if a pitcher can't go far enough into the game, and now you're constructing rosters based on the fact that your pitcher no longer has to hit, but you may not have enough reserve players. Who's pinch hitting for these pitchers? And I can tell you the first time that a pitcher gets hurt having to hit because of this, and don't tell me it can't happen because it certainly can, is it a long shot? Yes. The first time you hurt somebody asking them to do something they shouldn't be doing, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do. So I don't know that this is uh, the best of ideas. They're also looking at, you know, right now you can only throw over to first twice. You get two disengagements during an at-bat. If you throw over the third time, you have to uh, pick off the runner, I guess regardless of whatever base he's at, or it's a balk and the runner gets to go an extra base. Now they want to change it to a single disengagement. So they must really want to see more stolen bases. This is all I can take away from that. But those are some of the rules changes they're eyeing again in the experimental uh, stage in the Atlantic League, which is an independent league that's been helping Major League Baseball out with this stuff. Uh, something else that caught my eye this week, a dream come true for Mookie Betts, who you may remember was an infielder when he was a prospect with the uh, Boston Red Sox. He's played some second base. Of course, he's a gold glove right fielder. Brace found that out the hard way in the 2020 postseason when he uh, made some very great catches in the NLCS uh, to help keep the Braves out of the World Series that year. Couldn't really do it as much in 2021, be that as it may. Uh, Betts has been playing some shortstop for the Los Angeles Dodgers of late because some injuries have really put them into a roster crunch. So Betts is very excited about doing this. Is it a long-term fix? No, but if you saw the highlights, and this is radio, so I can't show them to you, but if you saw some of the highlights, you wouldn't know that Mookie Betts has not played shortstop in the big leagues before. He looks pretty good out there. He's a great athlete, of course. We all know that. Uh, One of the better players in all of baseball. And it just goes to show you what somebody who is just that committed to his team and uh, that you know committed to maybe the dream of being able to play shortstop in the major leagues, it just kind of led him to step in where his club needed him. So uh, good for Mookie Betts and obviously good for the Dodgers. As we wrap this thing up, we just talked to Victor Rojas of the uh, Los Angeles Angels, longtime uh, broadcaster for them and the host of the Angels Win podcast. And we got into Shohei Otani as how can you not if you're talking about the L.A. Angels. Uh, but Shohei Otani was also the subject of ESPN's The Get Up, where Jeff Passan, the uh, reporter for ESPN, talked about Shohei Otani's future in some very, very pointed words uh, about where exactly he could go. I can sum it up for you, or I can let you hear Jeff Passan talk about it. So here he is from ESPN's The Get Up. There's one number that we need to be looking at when it comes to Shohei Otani's future, 
And that is the Los Angeles Angels record, because as long as the Angels are in contention, as long as the Angels have hope for a playoff spot, Shohei Otani's probably not going to be traded at the deadline this year. But if the Angels fall out of contention, and if, you know, it's just more of the same as it's been over the last five years that he's been there, he could be traded and he will definitely leave. And seeing him at Yankee Stadium, seeing Aaron Judge rob him of a home run, seeing him hit another earlier in the series, seeing him do everything that he's been doing for the last three years when he's been the best player on the planet shows you why the Los Angeles Dodgers and New York Mets are going to be the two teams that are butting heads with the Giants and the Yankees and the Mariners and perhaps others on the periphery to pay the guy $500 million plus million. That's where the bidding is going to start, and it's only going to get higher than that because this guy is simply better than everyone. Yeah, it's the best player on the planet. That's Jeff Passan of ESPN talking about the sweepstakes for Shohei Otani, which could begin in earnest with the trade deadline. He could find a new home and may find a new home if the Angels fall out of it. Because if you are the Angels, and we did talk about this a lot as we wrap up here, I mean, can you afford to just let him walk, not resign him, and not get anything for him? When you think about what the prospect bounty for a rental of Shohei Otani could be, I do not envy Perry Manassian, who is sitting in the GM seat for the Angels, because not only do you want to re-sign Shohei Otani, bring him back, but that's kind of out of your hands because, you know, you can kind of authorize the checks, but you're not the one signing them. It's going to be interesting to see what exactly the Angels do here, who could go after him, and what club's going to end up, and who's going to pony up to what I think could be half a billion dollars to, sh- to sign Shohei Otani. I said this already. He could be a $50 million a year player. He could get a 10-year deal. Will he pitch all 10 years? I don't know, but he's a great hitter, great pitcher. We've never seen anything like him. That's going to wrap things up on this week's edition of Around the Big Leagues for all the big major league stories for the week that was. When we come back, though, we're going to dive right back into one of the biggest of the week. Kyle Glazer of Baseball America is going to join me to talk about the A's relocating to Las Vegas. What does it all mean? How did it all happen? We'll talk about it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday morning, getting you set for what will be a big day of baseball for the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, we like to keep you up to date with what else is going on around the world of baseball. And there were some big headlines coming out of the Bay Area. The Oakland Athletics, well, they may not be the Oakland Athletics for very much longer, given the news that they could be bolting to Las Vegas beginning with the 2027 season. I'm joined now by Kyle Glazer of Baseball America. You can find him on Twitter at Kyle A. Glazer. I really appreciate you making some time because this was a week in which Major League Baseball got the kind of story that we don't see too terribly often, maybe once every couple of three decades, a team potentially moving to a new city. Yeah, obviously late Wednesday night, news broke that the A's had entered into a binding agreement to purchase land in Las Vegas for the purpose of building a new ballpark. Obviously, it's not done yet. There's a lot of steps. They still have to secure financing. They still have to physically break ground. There's all sorts of legal and political hurdles they have to cross. Still, we see a lot of times teams agree to new stadiums. We see renderings. We see you know verbal agreements. Sometimes even signed agreements, but they fall apart. So there's still a lot of steps that have to take place before the eggs physically move to Las Vegas. That said, signing the binding agreement was really the first formal step this franchise has taken toward leaving and in a lot of ways there is a sense of while it was inevitable it it still hurts 
Yeah, and you would just hope that in some way, shape, or form it might be avoidable. But as I said, you know, we don't see Major League Baseball teams move too often. The last one we saw was the Montreal Expos becoming the Washington Nationals prior to 2005. But it seemingly has been trending in this direction for the athletics for more than a little while now. For people wondering, though, how exactly did we get here with the A's aiming to vault for Las Vegas like the Raiders before them? Yeah, the A's have been trying to get a new stadium in Oakland, really for the better part of 20 years. It's no secret. The Oakland Coliseum is aging and falling apart. It's not a place you really want to go see a baseball game, whether you're fans, whether you're covering it for media. And the the players themselves, the facilities are dated. There's feral animals running around, possums and cats, uh, raw sewage. I mean, it's really, really not a place that a major league team should be playing games in this day and age. But both the city and the team have not been able to find a solution. I mean, you go back to proposed stadiums in Fremont, San Jose, that never came to pass. Uh, they've most recently been talking about Howard Terminal in Oakland. You also had Jack London Square at one point was in consideration. And they've just never been able to get anything done. And really since the pandemic, you could see through the actions of the A's ownership that they were done. They really, really, really said we're saying, you know, we can't be here anymore. We need to make this as miserable as possible for everyone involved so that we have an out to leave for a new city. And that's what they've done in terms of their roster. They've completely stripped down a team that was competitive. They made the postseason mm-hmm. three straight years, 2018 to 20. They were in it in 2021. And they stripped it down, not in the way that previous A's teardowns took place, where oh, they had to cut salary and they still got good prospects back and they were just building it back up. They didn't get anything back for these guys. In 2022, the A's went 16-102. That was their worst record since 1979. Worse than any of their other previous rebuilds. This team they're putting on the field is significantly worse than any we've seen in really four decades in Oakland. Um, And they've really just let the stadium completely fall into disrepair. You know, basic fixes they've just ignored. You know, they are intentionally making going to an A's game as unpleasant as possible. I wrote in my column today, they've made it impossible for longtime season ticket holders to have the seats they had forever. And then they're charging them more for worse seats. They are actively trying to make it more difficult for fans to go to games. And it's all for this purpose of the negotiations have not worked. They can say they're negotiating, negotiating with Oakland, but as the mayor said, um, it was pretty clear the entire time. Those were just for the purpose of extracting a better deal out of Las Vegas. And, you know, everyone could see this coming the last two, three years, especially. Um, but the fact that it's actually happened doesn't make it hurt any less for, for the thousands and thousands of people who have really invested in the A's across decades. Yeah, and think about the Oakland Athletics. They weren't always the Oakland Athletics. They started in Philadelphia. They moved to Kansas City. They've been in Oakland since the late 60s. They've been playing in the Coliseum since 1968. So it's not like this isn't a franchise. It's steeped in history and, you know, at this point, rooted in Oakland about as long or maybe longer than they were in Philadelphia. But putting all that aside, you know, and and talking about the disrepair that the stadium was allowed to fall into and the ownership situation, and a lot of this was really highlighted in your column. And if you haven't read that yet, I'd invite you to read Kyle Glazer's column over at Baseball America. You can find it there. It really felt like, and as you pointed out, is this the movie Major League come to life? Because a lot of people, you know, they think of the A's, and they're like, oh, Moneyball, and they've got some good feelings, warm feelings about finding a way to compete with the juggernauts of baseball. And the A's have done that, but 
This felt like a totally different script that the ownership, in particular the club, was running the last few years to do the kind of things that we saw in Major League. Rachel Phelps was taking away all the nice things from the club, making it difficult to do anything close to the everyday life you know, that baseball teams would expect to have. It's just surprising to, to see it become essentially a, a silver screen adaptation of what you know is as close to real life as we can be actually playing out in real life for a major sports franchise. Yeah, I mean, that is the closest comparison. I, I also think in terms of real life, you know, being a native San Diego, and I saw it happen with the Chargers, Qualcomm Stadium was falling apart. It needed to be replaced, but ownership intentionally let it get worse and worse and worse and worse to kind of put pressure on the city to come up with a new stadium or give them an out to move. And the A's followed the exact same playbook, uh, talking to season ticket holders who have been in the stadium this year and then obviously have a long history there. They've talked about, I mean, bathroom stalls are are wobbly. And just the regular bathrooms, the fixtures, you know, faucets, they're rusting. I mean, it has literally become repellent to try and just go to the bathroom there, which again is intentional. These are things ownership can fix. Hey, it's not a difficult fix, but they have intentionally let them go. And, and you know, people laugh at, oh, the possum and the visiting broadcast booth. That thing's been there for over a year. It was in the press box last year, showed up in the visitor's broadcast booth last year. The Mets highlighted again. You can call a pest control service and get them removed, and they've just let it be there. They are intentionally letting things that are very, very fixable just stick around because they're intentionally trying to make it as miserable as possible for everyone involved. It's crazy to talk about this in relation to a major league baseball team or, again, a major sports franchise really anywhere in the world, let alone North America. Chatting with Kyle Glazer of Baseball America. Follow him on Twitter at Kyle A. Glazer. Now, let me ask you about the city of Oakland. You brought up comments made by the mayor. What's the take politically, I guess, on this move, the lack of a, a new ballpark, the lack of improvements made by the team to the Coliseum, all the sticking points about the ballpark as it is right now and potentially building a new park? You know, was an attempt actually made by the city to work with the team as much as we talk about the team maybe not really working with the city? It depends on your perspective. And look, there have been different mayors, different city councils, different leadership groups. So it's hard to say the city has done X or Y because what the city has done has been different at different times, depending on who's in charge. Generally speaking, the city of Oakland, especially recently, has taken the stand and and you can argue rightfully so that we're happy to, you know, help make this happen but we're not going to pay for your stadium. We're not going to give taxpayer dollars to you to pay for your stadium. And that is something that John Fisher and A's ownership have been rather insistent on. Um, You look back at Oracle Park across the Bay in San Francisco, that was built entirely with private funds. The way California law works, uh, Governor Jerry Brown eliminated redevelopment agencies last decade. That sort of essentially made it really, really difficult to get public funding for a stadium. In the state of California, you pretty much for the most part now have to have private financing. It's very difficult to get otherwise. And look, the city of Oakland, again, I think you can argue rightfully so, said we're not going to give you half a billion dollars in taxpayer funds or tax breaks to build a stadium and let you keep all the revenues. This has to be a true partnership. Um, A lot of sports teams, not just the A's, don't like that. They want to take all the public money and then keep all the private profits for themselves. And Las Vegas kind of offered that to them. The, the, The city of Las Vegas, the state of Nevada, gave the Raiders $750 million. Mm-hmm. The A's are reportedly looking for $500 million on a $1.5 billion stadium. So I think Oakland is perfectly within its right to not want to give taxpayer dollars away. 
And the A's, I understandably, if someone's going to give you half a billion dollars, you're probably going to take that deal. Sure. And I think that that's part of the nuance of these negotiations. And like you said earlier, you can leverage what's not going right in your current situation into perhaps a different situation. And for the athletics in this particular case, that different situation would involve moving the team, not just out of the city, but out of the state into a whole new location. Uh, let me ask in, in particular, like where did ownership fall in all of this? We've spoken about some of the events that have transpired, but John Fisher is worth a couple of billion dollars. So it's not like they didn't have the financial wherewithal to A, field better teams, retain some top talent, or hire an exterminating service to maybe get rid of some of the animals that are running wild in the Coliseum. Again, this was done intentionally. You go back to 2019, the last time the A's hosted a postseason game, they sold out the Coliseum. They set a record for most attended wild card game that that one nothing loss to the A's that year. Excuse me, to the Rays that year. You know, 2020 pandemic season. They reached the playoffs. No fans were allowed in the stands. But you know, something really shifted with the pandemic. We really saw again. Not that the A's ever ran a high payroll, but. They were putting out competitive teams on the field. And look, John Fisher has been involved in A's ownership since 2005. It's not like he came in and everything changed all of a sudden 2019 or so. Mm -hmm. Beginning in 2020, the first step that really showed you just the lack of interest in investing in the A's future was the A's originally announced they were not going to pay minor leaguers during the canceled 2020 minor league season. John Fisher is worth an estimated $2.2 billion, and they were refusing to pay their minor leaguers $400 a week, the literal future of their organization. They were choosing to let them live in poverty when they had a chance to, to help them. And eventually, they reversed that after nearly every other team committed to paying their players. The A's were kind of shamed into doing it. But it let you know what the mindset of the A's was and what John Fisher's mindset was, was we're not going to spend any money on this team. We're not going to invest in them. 2021 team was competitive. Their payroll opening day was up near $90 million, which is considerable for them. They were a competitive team. They did not have to trade Matt Olson, Matt Chat, Matt Chapman, Chris Bassett, Sean Manaya. They they had these guys under control, but they decided to just take a sledgehammer to it. Again, the focus shifted on we want to get to Vegas and a winning team with fan support. That's not a team that gets to relocate. How can we make this as miserable as possible? They stripped the team down, traded it for very underwhelming prospect packages, which were known at the time. That's not hindsight. Again, the stadium was never in great shape, but talking to fans, they've noticed it's gotten even worse in recent years. And the way they treated season ticket holders, ticket holders used to have, let's say, as I spoke to one in my article, you had your season seat behind home plate. It was $40. When he came, when the stadium reopened, they said, "Hey, you're going to be charged seventy dollars now, but you can't have your same seat. We have to send you down the lines to right field, left field." Wow. Again, this is these are not the actions of a business that are trying to retain their most loyal customers. These are the actions of a business trying to repel them. They kept doing it in 2022, putting a worse team on the field. Uh, really, since 2020, ownership has been intentional about making things as miserable as possible for everyone involved at the Oakland Coliseum for this purpose. Uh, And we've seen here in Atlanta, not one, but two stars of the Oakland Athletics traded to the Braves. I mean, the prospect packages for either, I'm not sure were necessarily blockbuster, but it seemed to be fairly good talent going back. But then again, you know, time is kind of how we judge a lot of those. But we the Braves knew what they were getting with Matt Olson. They know what they were hoping to get with Sean Murphy. And, you know, there's a big difference in an Oakland Athletics team that's able to retain those guys. And some of the pitchers they traded away, you mentioned Matt Chapman as well. You know, a lot of good players have put on an Oakland Athletics uniform in the last, what, five to seven years alone. If you're able to keep that core together, you still would have, I think, the you know, the the makings of a playoff team or a team that 
should be in that hunt, even in an ultra-competitive division with the likes of the Houston Astros and an up-and-coming Seattle Mariners club. But putting all of that aside, because those aren't the guys that are putting on Oakland uniforms anymore, I want to talk about the fans and what they can make of all this, because low attendance might lead some people outside of the situation further away to point or even joke about the lack of fan support because we do see the attendance numbers, and ownership can point to those and say, look, we're not getting support. But the issue goes so much deeper than that, as you've laid out here time and again. There are plenty of athletics fans that may simply want more and better from a club than it's been handing them, especially in the past three or four years. Look, these fans are making a rational economic decision. If you are giving someone an inferior product and charging them double for it, they're, they're going to say no. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that simple. And the A's know that. They have done this. They have put their fans intentionally in a no-win situation. Say, okay, we're going to make things as miserable as possible, put a horrible product on the field, charge you double for it, and also make it difficult for you to, to even attend the games and sit in the seats that you're used to sitting in. We're going to make the food horrible, the bathrooms horrible. We are going to make this miserable for you. Those are intentional actions by the team that they have taken over the last few years. And then on top of it, if you're an ace fan, if, if you're a rational, you know, buyer of any of anything, you're going to say, well, that's a horrible value for my dollar. Why am I going to do that? And ace fans, again, as I laid out my article, are really put in a no-one situation. If they stay away, which again is a very rational decision, a rational economic decision, it plays right into ownership's hands, which again, they know that's why they did it. it plays yep. right into ownership's hands and say, hey, you know, we have no fans. We have to leave. If they say, you know what? We don't care. We love the A's so much. We're going to buy tickets and sit in worse seats and watch a horrible team anyway. Well, then they're financially rewarding the person who's making their life miserable. So no matter what they do, they're in a no-win situation. And again, I don't think you can blame anyone, any rational economic you know, buyer, anyone making a purchase in any aspect of life. If you give someone an inferior product and charge them double for it, they're going to walk away. Yeah, it's a pretty bad business model, and I wouldn't say it's exactly a good faith gesture by ownership towards the fans, the longstanding fans of this team that's been in that city for, what, six decades now. So it's a shame to see on, on in that respect, and obviously there's a lot of business and political machinations that go into having a situation like this unfold in the way it has. And if you want to read more about that, I invite you to go on over to BaseballAmerica.com. The article from Kyle Glazer is the A's ran the tried-and-true playbook for relocation, and we'll kind of see how everything plays out with this pending or potential move to Las Vegas. Kyle, I appreciate all of your time. Tell folks where they can connect with your work and, of course, what else you might have in the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, BaseballAmerica.com. You can also subscribe to the magazine. We're still producing a great product every single month. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kyle A. Glazer. And uh, yeah, you know, again, those are those are the main places. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, I've got some more columns coming next week. Uh, we're launching a brand new podcast next week as well. I encourage everyone to tune into. And we've got all of our great coverage of the draft, college, minors and majors as we normally do at BA. So it's a great time to subscribe and I encourage everyone to come on over and check it out. It always is a great team of writers over at Baseball America. You won't be disappointed if you go over there and make that particular investment if you're a baseball fan. Kyle, I appreciate your time and look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Grant. That's a look at what's happening out in Oakland and quite possibly what could be happening in Las Vegas as soon as 2027. When we come back, we'll have a lot more Braves and baseball talk for you right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Welcome back in. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios, wrapping things up on this week's edition. We have packed a lot into a couple hours here on a Sunday morning as we get ready for Braves baseball this afternoon. And, of course, look ahead to the week that is to come for the Braves as they're on a homestand that doesn't just include the Houston Astros for three games this weekend, a series in which the Braves uh, were not able to win. It'll also be our first look at the Miami Marlins. I think a team that's uh, much improved from a year ago. I don't know that they're necessarily going to turn themselves into a powerhouse overnight, but I think they have made some moves and taken some steps to perhaps be a bit more competitive this year, and that's what you want to see, right, is some progress. But we'll talk about the Marlins a little bit later uh, as there is a, a good amount to get into uh, as we talk about what has been going on this weekend and really what's been going on this season regarding one story that I went into great detail on it last week. And because it's still going on, I'll go into great detail again on it this week because it bears repeating. The Braves are in a very interesting place. And by interesting, I mean probably a very frustrating place, but uh, one that has gotten no easier week over week regarding the playing time of Marcelo Zuna. Now, if you are to look, as one does, into the statistics of a player to see you know, what the early returns are on the season, and you know, three weeks in, you may be saying, all right, well, there's a lot of baseball left to be played because I can tell you I've said that very many times. i said it on this show. There's a lot of baseball left this season, but for Marcelo Zuna, we're not talking about a bad couple of three weeks in 2023. We're talking about a lost season in 2021. We're talking about a bad season in 2022, and we're talking about a bad start in 2023, and all of it just kind of adds up. And you're looking at a player who is you know, looked upon as the Braves' designated hitter, at least more times than not, uh, and quite a bit in this Braves lineup with 51 at-bats this year. He's got four hits. Uh, four out of 51 is the kind of thing you might expect from a pitcher who's batting. That's not the kind of thing you expect out of the guy who is supposed to be the hitter that hits in the place of the pitcher to put more offense into the game. That's the whole idea behind that. That has not really worked out in practice for the Braves. Two solo home runs for Marcel this year. Four hits, three runs scored. He's batting 078 with an OPS that's on base plus slugging just over 400. Again, these are pitcher based stats if you're looking uh, for what, you know, hitting wise we're talking about. And as I talked about a week ago, and, and with the updates on Michael Harris, the second, Travis Darno, both making progress, both potentially getting back into the Braves lineup at some point in the not too distant future. At least you feel like they're, they're trending in that direction now that they're actually taking BP and doing stuff out on the field. The Braves are going to have a roster crunch, and it's not just going to include those two guys, but you're going to get Orlando Arcia back at some point. And even if you option down a couple of players that maybe it just it seems obvious, like you would send Von Grissom back to AAA to clear the path for Orlando Arcia. Okay, well, that move may make sense. You might option down Eli White to clear the place for Michael Harris to come back, but then you're going to get Travis Darno back at some point. You're also looking at what is the best lineup for this club. And at this point, I just don't think that there's any way that you can look at the Braves' options and the options that they will have when you get all these players back and say that Marcelo Zuna has earned and deserves playing time more than these guys if you are truly trying to put out the best lineup to win, which I can assure you is one of the many things that goes into the Braves' decision when they make a starting nine each and every day. Now, some of it is you owe this guy a lot of money. You're hoping that he showed you some things maybe last September and in the spring that would lead you to believe that he could contribute this year. But the results tell you a totally different thing. And these are not at bats where, you know, he's going up there and lining the ball all over the ballpark and just getting robbed of base hits night after night. We're seeing a lot of non-competitive at bats, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of hard-hit ground balls right at the shortstop on the first pitch, pop-ups. I mean, it's not anything that would lead you to believe that, hey, there's hope here beyond what the numbers tell us. So clearly, as the time goes on, then the questions start to mount. What exactly can you do with Marcelo Zuno? 
I think the business sense alone. There's a lot of other things baked into this, but I thought it was interesting. Brian Snitker was asked about this after the game on Saturday. Uh, what exactly he's seeing right now in Marcelo Zuna and what exactly the club was hoping to see as they broke camp for spring training. Here's Brian Snitker after Saturday's game. I just keep hoping that I keep thinking what I saw in the spring and you just kind of hope that at some point he's going to square a couple of balls up and and get on a run. You know, obviously, you know, we'd like it sooner than later. But, you know, they just keep fighting and making adjustments and, and making good use of the, your, the time that you're going to have. Hopefully something good comes of it. He's always upbeat and works hard and um, is very, you know, like I say, very upbeat guy. I mean, I don't see ever see him, you know, not being really positive. I mean, when you've hit as long as he has and been as a, an elite player, you know, they're just, I think he, he feels like I do. I think maybe it's just that it's in there. Just got to keep working to, to get it out. And, and you do work for a certain amount of time to be able to do that. But at some point, you reach a decision that has to be made about how much more you can do and, and how much more rope you can hand somebody and allow them to take up those valuable at-bats and that playing time that could be better spent on other players. I talked to Sam Hilliard earlier in the show and what he has done stepping in from Michael Harris to second. Well, you bring Michael Harris back, you've got to figure out maybe what you're going to do with Sam Hilliard, who – might not be the biggest part of your plan just based on the payroll obligation that you have between him and Marcelo Zuna, but which player gives you a better chance? You can play defensively in left field, what you need him to do, and offensively might have some upside. I think at some point you reach that, and I think for the Braves, they're getting to that point. And as I mentioned, that roster crunch, which will really take effect when you get Michael Harris the second, Travis Darno, and Orlando Arcia back. You hope all of that's going to happen really before you get out of the month of May, and certainly for Darno and for Harris, the timetables are much sooner than that. How exactly are you going to be able to justify any more bats for Marcelo Zuna at that point? Especially when you start to look at the two places where he can effectively, you know, make a contribution for this club. Braves left fielders this year, let me put it this way, are dead last in the majors with a 444 OPS. Again, I talked about Marcelo Zuna's numbers being pitcher like. A 444 OPS is about what you would get out of the average pitcher. Maybe a little bit better, but honestly, we're splitting hairs at that point. It ain't good. DH for Atlanta, 24th in OPS, just under 600. And that's including some contributions from guys that are playing other positions most of the time. But Atlanta has, once again, and we talked about this a lot last year on the show, they weren't getting a lot out of left field. By the end of the year, they basically were just rolling with Robbie Grossman, trying to get something out of that. And DH was also a lost spot for the Braves in terms of production. They just weren't getting out of it what they should be. And Marcelo Zuna is a big reason why in one of those two spots that they're not getting what they need. Now, we have not seen the best of the Braves' offense in this series. They've scored first in both of the games against the Astros and have not been able to get the runs they needed late in the game. Two-run homer by Ozzy Albies on Saturday made it a one-run game, but Houston did what a good club does. They added on, and the Braves were unable to find the rally there. Atlanta did score four runs in the first inning in the first game. And Houston, again, did what a good team will do and came back and you know, got into the Atlanta bullpen and found some runs to win that one as well. So you can't lay all of the offensive struggle at the feet of Marcelo Zuna, but he has really become the poster child or the figurehead for the struggles of Atlanta's lineup once you get really beyond the cleanup spot. And is that fair to him altogether? Probably not. But you've got a bunch of injuries that have piled up on the Braves. You've got some guys who are obviously doing the best they can to fill in in those spots. And you have, I think, hope, and you should be optimistic if you're a Braves fan, that once you get back to full health, I mean, this is a club that could be even better. And they're a club that's off to a good start despite some of these struggles. But can you make it through 162 games? 
not getting the kind of production you need on a nightly basis out of most of the five through nine spots in the order, or let's just say at least the bottom third of the order. You've got to figure out some way to get more production there, and you've got to figure out the way to get some continuity, and health is going to be a big part of that. But you also just can't continue to do the same thing over and over again, and that, I think, is what the Marcelo Zuna discussion has reached at this point. And it's a difficult one, and it's not a fun one from a business sense, and it's not a fun one to watch play out on your TV or if you're sitting in the stands as a Braves fan each and every night to know that, you know, hey, this has been going on for a while and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, Speaking of some struggles, and I know we talked a lot in the spring about Matt Olson and how well he was swinging the bat and it really translated over into the season, but he's been striking out at a pretty alarming rate here over the first, what, three weeks or so of the season, and it's really picked up in the last few games, and on the road trip in particular, I noticed the strikeouts were really starting to pile up. Two for his last 19. He's got a homer. He's got nine strikeouts in his last five games. That's nine strikeouts in his last 19 at-bats, and a real problem with left-handed pitching thus far. Batting under 200 with no homers and 18 strikeouts and 31 at-bats against left-handed pitchers. You look at the strikeout rate for Olsen, his last year in Oakland, it was just under 17%, which is, for a slugger that could hit 40 homers, 17% or less on strikeout rate, sign me up any day. Last year, it was close to 25%, which is, you know, it's up there, but it's not egregious. This year, the strikeout percentage is 36%. And this is another edition of small sample size theater, as far as that's concerned. I don't expect Matt Olson to strike out 262 times or whatever he's on pace for this year. But I do know that the strikeouts have been piling up here lately, and that has been a bit difficult for the Braves slugging first baseman. Hopefully he can get that turned around. Atlanta's going to try to salvage the finale against the Houston Astros, then they're going to welcome in the Miami Marlins for a four-game series. That's what's coming up next week for the Atlanta Braves. We'll be back next week on From the Diamond with plenty more Braves and baseball talk for you. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with me. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast, and, of course, find it on the Odyssey app. I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.